Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm an alcoholic and an Al-Anon, and I have a host of other problems that have been solved with the 12 steps, fortunately, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, <laughs> mostly slowly. Um, just design, the, the instigation for these talks came from people in the S fellowships in, in Australia, and one of the things I've sponsored a lot of people with problems in the S area, uh, or, or S and L, sex and love, uh, which is one letter different than S and M. <laughs> S and L, just as damaging. Uh, and people find my experience, this is my experience, and it's been the experience of many people I've sponsored, finding, um, achieving abstinence or compliance with bottom lines in the S area, extremely difficult. Um, and different fellowships I know have different approaches. So what I'm gonna say is not applicable to any particular fellowship, but I'm just gonna talk about the general principles. Um, with, with addictions, uh to substances you've actually got to make quite some effort to have a relapse or, or a slip or to drink or use you've actually got to go and buy the bottle of gin and take it home get your glass and pour it and drink it so there's a little bit of a gap between the thought and the action uh there's room there for something to come in let me just blame my nose. Just give me. I want to preserve my nose blown for posterity. <laughs> um, now, the thing is with the S addictions, you can be walking along the street or you can have a sudden thought or a number can flash up on your phone and you're, you get a little chemical rush. Uh, and it's like falling through a trap door into another world. And so you've already had the slip. The thought is the slip. You've already triggered a physical process, which is very difficult to stop. Um, Suzanne Vega says, don't uncork what you can't contain. And the thoughts are very difficult to contain once they've been once the, the bottle has been uncorked. Because of that, partly because of this, there are other reasons too. Abstinence is not, in my experience, achieved instantly in very many cases because the process gets triggered within oneself uh, and it takes a, a, a while before the rest of the program kicks in. I, My experience also with with both food and with uh, uh, all of the S stuff, is that food and sex and love and relationships are part of an ordinary human existence. Whereas, uh, well, heroin isn't. It's not intrinsic to life. Uh, so one's got to skirt those issues whether it's food or sex or love or whatever what one has to one can't simply stay out of the arena one has to live 
in part in the arena. You can't shut yourself away from those things. It's very easy to keep yourself out of the crack dens, as it were. You can keep yourself even out of the alcohol aisle at the supermarket. But you can't cut yourself off from one half of the human race or if someone is fortunate or unfortunate enough to be bisexual from the whole of the human race in order to avoid temptation. I mean, I, I really do feel for people in that position. You've <laughs> got to talk about an uphill struggle. Um, but facetiousness aside, it, it's, it's very difficult. And I see people beating themselves up very badly for failing to comply with their bottom lines. But I think there is a line that must be held. Uh, and I think it's where the behavior harms others. Um, there are certain things where if the behavior is harming others, rivers sometimes can't be stopped, but they can be redirected. You can't vanish the river, the river is there, but you can make sure that it runs through a safe gully rather than flooding away a village. Um, but I'll come to a little bit more about that later. I want to look back at uh, what the purpose of step two is in the first place. Uh, for those of you that weren't here for the step one, we need a little bit of a recap. And the recap comes fortunately in the big book on page 44. So if you're wondering where the steps are in the big book, well, first of all, they're in it. Uh, I wasn't aware right from the beginning of my journey in AA, I've been, for the record, I've been sober since 1993. My first Al-Anon meeting was 1995. Um, I didn't know that the steps were in the big book. I thought it was simply a history book of how AA came to be what it was. And if in the early 90s, if you went to a step meeting, I, I can see one or two people here that might have been in, in AA then. If you went to an AA meeting in the early 90s, it was invariably in London, without exception, as far as I was aware, uh, a 12 and 12 meeting you went to a you went to a step meeting and they talked they read from the 12 and 12 and the step four that was usually done in london then was not out of the big book it employed elements of the big book but it was essentially this it was just a resentment list and in the third column it wasn't that this affects my all of these different seven areas of self we had 14 character defects. You picked which of those 14 character defects was applicable in that situation. It was just a resentment list. It wasn't a fear inventory. There wasn't a sex inventory. I understand this is a, a, a method from a particular group in California. Um, and that was the standard method that I knew of in, in London. And there were various other things people did quietly on their own, but that was essentially the method. I did not know that the big book uh, was to be taken as setting out a set of consistent 
a coherent set of consistent instructions for how to recover. The notion that one could go through the big book and do precisely what it said was not introduced to me until I was about 10 years sober. It was certainly not something I ever heard in meetings. Uh, and in fact, when I was eight years sober, I got into hot water in various ways. I got into trouble and psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, certainly. And I went to lots of different people. No one suggested the big book, not one person. Mostly it was up your meetings. That's what people say, you need to up your meetings. I thought up yours too. <laughs> I'm already doing a lot of meetings. <laughs> Not doing me any good, buster. I've been going to your wretched meetings for eight years and I, I'm waking up at four o'clock in the morning with panic attacks. Any clue as to when this is supposed to kick in? In any case, to cut a long story short, I discovered that the instructions are in the big book. Uh, in Game of Thrones season seven, episode five, if I'm not mistaken, uh, there is a character who, the maesters in Game of Thrones are, are these doctors and medieval scientists effectively, but chiefly physicians, but they do other things as well. Um, and someone manages, to, I won't do, do a spoiler, someone manages to do something, one, one trainee maester manages to achieve something medically, which is theoretically possible, but everyone said it's too dangerous, it's impossible, you should, no one should tr even try and do it. And he does it and he succeeds in curing someone. Um, and this old maester says to him, Many maesters with uh, chains heavy with links of healing have failed to successfully perform this procedure. Yet you, an untrained person, have succeeded. How did you do it? And he said, I read the books and I followed the instructions. And I think that very neatly sums up what the big book is capable of. If you do exactly what it says, you'll be fine. Uh, it's taking things away from it and adding things to it, which is the absolute disaster. Um, I'll give you an example of that. I will get to step two, <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> um, but I think some of this is important for background. When we get to step six and seven, you're presented with the most appalling proposition to give up your entire way of life as you've been living it up to that point. Now, this is not a new proposition. This proposition arises in step three, when we say uh, we're willing to turn our wills and our lives over to the care of God and direction of God, in fact. But it's largely theoretical. We don't know at step three fully what we're turning over. We have a general idea that the whole thing is a, is a bit of a circus. Uh, but we're still sure that things are other people's fault. And it's our terrible childhoods. And if only we hadn't had these terrible childhoods, then we wouldn't have to treat people so badly today. 
now, by the time you get to step seven, with any luck at all, you've been disabused of these false notions. Uh, and as an adult, you've learned that you're responsible. I certainly learned I'm responsible for my beliefs, my thinking and my behavior. I'm not responsible for having been given false beliefs on which the thinking and the behavior were based, but it's my responsibility to do something about them. You know, 18 years plus one day hasn't given you much time to assess and recast your beliefs, thinking and behavior. But frankly, by the time you're in your late 20s, 30s, 40s, you've had enough time. It's now your responsibility. It's no longer the fault of the people that put it there. If someone posted something through your letterbox when you were seven, and at the age of 35, it was still sitting there festering on the little mat in, uh, on the inside of the front door, that would not be the fault of the person that posted it through your letterbox. It would be your fault. It's your house. It's your letterbox. It's your mat. It's your carpet. And in step seven, you're presented, step six and seven, you're presented with the most appalling idea. Let go of everything you believe, everything you think and everything you do and be prepared to live on an entirely new basis. It's rather like joining the French Foreign Legion or signing a, an employment contract with Goldman Sachs. Your job will no longer, your life will no longer be yours. It now belongs to well, respectively, God or Goldman Sachs, to name but one of many such financial institutions, no offence to any persons living or dead. Um, and it's a terrible thing, step seven, but a wonderful thing. But it's a very bare proposition. There's no dancing around that. You've got, you want to give up your life and have a new one or not. Pick one. Red button to halt the process green button to proceed with the process. Do you want to press the green button? Fine. Just like in the matrix, there are two pills. Um, you can have one or you can have the other. Probably best not to try both. <laughs> so step seven is very simple. But I tell you, you go to a step seven meeting and people talk at great length about all sorts of exercises they do and special things they've learned. And all of those serve to conceal the basic horror of what is being presented. And it turns it into something else. There are two ways not to do a step properly. The first way is not to, just to miss something out. The second way is to add something which is not there explicitly or by implication. So step one, is in the big book, as are all the other steps. Where is it in the big book? It's essentially the contents of the book up to page 44, but those pages contain all sorts of other interesting things as well. So it, it, it interlards those step one ideas with, with other, with promises and stories and a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's a smorgasbord up to page 44, but the main dish is step one on the smorgasbord. Um, step one then gets summed up on page 44 as containing two propositions. You're an alcoholic if A or B. We're going to come to the or in a moment. You're an alcoholic if when you start drinking, you're off to the races. Essentially, that's what it says. Or you try and stop altogether and you fail. If either of those two apply, 
you're an alcoholic. If you're an alcoholic, you cannot solve this and you need a power greater than yourself to solve this. Now, the book says or, but it's very clear that for practical purposes, uh, it must mean and. and. I'll tell you why that's legitimate to read it that way. And secondly, why it's necessary to read it that way. It's necessary to read it that way because if when I drink, I cannot but drink buckets of the stuff, but I'm perfectly capable of staying away from the first drink. I have no problem. If I'm compelled to drink every day and I get very grumpy if I don't, yet when I drink, I'm perfectly capable of stopping after one glass, then I don't have a problem. Uh, the French side of my family, for a, for a French side of a family, I have. Um, most of them have one glass a day. If they don't have the glass, there is all hell to pay, but they don't have more than one glass. They would have great trouble going for the rest of their lives without a glass of wine, but they don't, they're not alcoholics. So really you've got to have both sides of the problem to, uh, uh, to, be, to need AA, to need a power greater than yourself. So why does it say all? All through the book, there is a, an effort not to make categorical statements. The, the authors don't make categorical statements, they hedge. So they say, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Um, and it uses those adverbs all the way through to just soften the statement slightly. If they said, never have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path, people would queue up to, to demonstrate exceptions to this and start arguments. Unfortunately, you can't argue with the statement, rarely have we seen a person fail, because if you can present a person who failed, that doesn't invalidate the proposition, because the proposition admits exceptions. So the exceptions are not an argument in favour of anything. And the statement is softened here as well. And there are people where it's questionable with one, with one part or the other of step one, but essentially they're in the right place. It's a, it's a broad church. AA. It's not meant to be forbidding. It's not meant to erect very serious hurdles or obstacles for people to sign up to it. So there's the language of hedging. In the same way that we suggest you take these steps, sounds all very polite. It doesn't mean that if you don't take them, you're just as far ahead. It's just a polite offering. But very interestingly, the authors, when they're quoting someone else, they allow the person they're quoting to make categorical statements. So when they quote a doctor at the end of chapter whatever, you, you will be 100% uh, hopeless without divine help. They don't say that. They allow a doctor they're quoting. I think it was a doctor for, from um, Johns Hopkins, um, if, if I'm not mistaken. There's a history of the writing of the big book, and it's in there who, who that doctor probably was. So they do make their, their beliefs are categorical, but they only allow others, third parties, non-AAs, to make the categorical statements. Um, uh, in the doctor's opinion, it makes lots of categorical statements. So step one, um, left to my own devices, I will drink 
And if I start, I may never stop. And with the S addictions, it's exactly the same thing. There is a set of activities which if I engage in them at all, I might never stop. So I'm permanently and thoroughly banned from doing certain things, going to certain places, engaging in certain types of activity. Um, what step two says, uh, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So let's work at that right from the back. What is sanity? Again, people will give all sorts of interesting interpretations about sanity, um, which may be true in a general sense, but I'm interested in what the people that wrote the book meant. And so step two is in the context of the surrounding steps, the step that comes before and the step that comes afterwards. Now, you'll notice in step one, if you're paying attention, it says we, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. It does not mention insanity there. You get to step two, which talks about a restoration to sanity. You can only be restored to sanity if you are presently insane. If you're not insane, there is no restoration possible. So step two presupposes you've admitted you're insane. You're like, wait a second. I admitted that my life was unmanageable. I did not admit I was insane. How dare you? Unfortunately, step one is about insanity. And this is where uh, there's a lot of great confusion about this, about uh, what are the steps. The steps appear to be what is written on page 59 of the big book. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. Fine. And then it's 200 words or so. And I've already recited the first step and the second step. Are these the steps? Well, in a manner of speaking, yes. But I think it's in the forward to the third edition. It says the steps which are a summary of the program. So the steps are really like headlines or they're like the titles in a recipe book. So on the title page, it may say, you know, page 17, Quiche Lorraine, page 47, Black Forest Gatto. But if you just saw the phrase Quiche Lorraine, and you said, right, I'm going to make a Quiche Lorraine, what you would make would very likely not resemble a Quiche Lorraine. It might have a family resemblance, but it would not be a quiche Lorraine. You need to know what you're doing. Same with the Black Forest Gatto. Even if you've eaten a Black Forest Gatto, I, I, I expect most of us have eaten a Black Forest Gatto. If, you, if I told you to go into your kitchen and say, I make one, I should think very few of us would be able to do a, a, a passing approximation of a Black Forest Gatto. It might be a delicious cake if you're good at cakes, but a Black Forest Gatto, it wouldn't be. And the steps are like that. People will take the step on page 59. And rather than looking at what that's supposed to be a summary of, which is the contents of the book, they make up all sorts of things. I was in 
I think this is long enough hence that I can say this. 20 years ago, I was in an Al-Anon meeting in a, as they say in the big book, in a Western city. And uh, someone shared very proudly, they'd done a step five in Al-Anon. And they'd gone to their sponsor and she said, so the exact nature of my wrongs, I conveyed the exact nature of my wrongs. And the exact nature of my wrongs was all of the wrong things that had ever been done to me. Those are my wrongs. And I confessed those to someone else. <laughs> uh, now, if you say, well, we're permitted to understand these steps and interpret them however we want, that will be a legitimate understanding of those words. It's just like in tradition three, someone that was never an alcoholic uh, and doesn't care for drink, it says, well, I have a desire not to drink, therefore I can join AA. Is a, it's, it's a willful misreading of what the intention of tradition three is. So with the steps, one must read the step in the context of the whole book. And in step one, it's not just we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. It's the full content of the book up to that point. And it talks a lot about insanity. What is insanity, therefore, according to the book? It's given my history, having a drink is insane. And the simplest example is my poor old friend, Paul, who, who drank again in 1995 and 2023. Uh, and he still hasn't rejoined AA fully as far as I'm aware. He's been back a few times, but stayed a few months and gone out again. But he was very solid for a couple of years in the early 90s. If an alcoholic starts again, good luck. And my experience with the S addictions, exactly the same. You're off to the races. You'll be back, but who knows when? And who knows what's going to happen between now and the time that you're back? So sanity in that situation is not having the first drink. Sanity from an S perspective is not engaging in the following activities because you can't contain what you've un what you might uncork. Just a footnote on Al-Anon. What is sanity in Al-Anon? Uh, with AA, it's very much an event. You become physically sober, you're separated from alcohol and Hopefully you stay that way. The, the bad news for all us Alanons, it's a little bit more of a process than it is an event. So getting sober, as it were, becoming sober and sane in Alanon, I'm afraid is a long, is a long process. It, it's by no means instant. Uh, but I think sanity, in my experience, and this, this can legitimately be understood in different ways. As soon as you cross apply the steps to a living problem as opposed to a pure addiction. Uh, the steps do admit quite a lot of interpretation and, and variation because they weren't designed for that specifically. So what is sanity for me in uh, Al-Anon? Um, keeping my big fat mouth shut, letting it begin with me, not taking responsibility for other people, not making other people take responsibility for me. Um, when someone is very unwell, 
recognizing I cannot fix them and not even trying and not worrying about the fact I cannot fix them. Recognizing I'm 100% responsible for my beliefs, my values, my attitudes, my thoughts, uh, my actions, and my feelings, and you're 100% responsible for yours. As you can see from that definition, that ain't going to happen between now and next Tuesday. But there are a few things which can be done straight away. Um, there's a line in the Just For Today card, which I think is underused. Um, if uh, a large part of the planet were burned to a crisp, heaven forbid, and there were very little left, and the only thing left of 12-step fellowships uh, was the Just For Today card. I think you could reconstruct the DNA of AA and Alanol, Alanol in particular, from the Just For Today card, as in fact, geneticists, I think, are able to reconstruct the DNA of, of uh, dinosaurs. They know what the dinosaur might have looked like from the, 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 uh, the, the mosquito, which has uh, sucked blood of a dinosaur and is now preserved in amber. I, I, it's the same thing. The whole program is contained in the Just For Today card, where it talks about not attempting to fix or regulate another person, working only on yourself. I think that's the sanity, is minding, mind my own effing business, is the as another summary of the Al-Anon program. The trick is knowing what is your business. So came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now we're going to get onto the thorny question of God. <laughs> Very popular topic. Um, if you, if you want to hear about God in AA, don't go to an ordinary AA meeting. You won't hear about God there. Everyone's so frightened of frightening the newcomer. They, they don't mention God. If someone mentions God, all the untreated Alanons in the room rush round, uh, trying to sort of brush, airbrush it uh, and, and manipulate newcomers' views of the situation. They're, they're too stupid to think for themselves. So we have to think for them and tell them what to tell them what to uh, think about God. Um, um, and they discount and discount and discount until everything that's been said about the higher power is now completely out of the window. If you really want to hear about God in AA and hear really intelligent discourse about how to form and build a relationship with the power greater than yourself, go to an atheist and agnostics meeting. They talk about nothing else. It's the only topic and people often talk very well about God whilst saying they don't believe in God. They do a marvellous job in presenting their belief in God. And I'll tell you why I think that. Um, the, the word is neither here nor there. It's the thing the word denotes that matters. Now, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves and then it says later on in the book, that one is God. There we go. So what is God? God is the power greater than ourselves. So we can now dispense with the word God, which is just an empty pointer, and go to this phrase, a power greater than ourselves. That's the working definition. So for that to be understood, um, 
so if, if Susan is taller than Sally, we only know how tall Susan is by knowing how tall Sally is. So to know what a power greater than ourselves is, one has to know what, well, what is the self that the power is greater than? So the real job of step two is not defining theologically what God is in, in a sort of medieval sense. Well, what is self? Um, and I think self, this is just my understanding of it, self uh, from the point of view of step two is the sum total of my thinking and oomph, my thinking, my thoughts, my impulses, my get up and go, my ability to get things done, power. I'm not a physicist, but my physicist friends of whom I have none reliably inform me that power is the ability to get work done, simply that the, the potential to do something. So uh, self, a power greater than myself, a power greater than the power of self. So it's the sum total of what I can do unaided based on my own best thinking, my own best thinking, my own oomph. And when I look at my own best thinking and my own oomph, it couldn't keep me sober. I recognized in 1990 that... Uh, uh, drinking is catastrophic. It, it was driving me crazy. I, I, even I realized it was making things worse. It was no good me saying, well, I drink because I'm depressed. It was clearly making me more depressed. I drink because I'm anxious. It's clearly making me more anxious. Uh, I remember occasions of acting out in the S area and thinking, I don't want to be here doing this but I'm doing it and it makes no sense. And I wish I weren't here, but here I am. Um, my thinking is fundamentally flawed. Being an alcoholic or a sex addict or a whatever is like being a king with a number of generals. And the generals are your only connection to the field of the theater of war. Uh, you cannot see what is going on on the various battlefields. You have to rely on the chain of command. You have to rely on the chain of command. You have to rely on what the generals have to say to you. Uh, your reliance is complete. So I am not my own thoughts. I am the receiver of my thoughts. My thoughts think themselves at me and I receive them. I don't make my own thoughts. They make themselves. My job is then to do something with them, to sort, to classify, to arrange, and then to act on the basis of them. Now let's go back to our king with his famous generals, a dozen generals. Now, the position of the alcoholic is like the position of a king with 12, let's say 12 generals. We like the number 12 in AA. Um, he has 12 generals. On any given day, 
One of them is lying. But you don't know which. And the one that's lying may suddenly start telling the truth. And one of the other generals may start lying. At any given point, one of the 12 generals is lying. But there is no way of knowing which. In this position, none of the generals can be trusted because any general could be at that point lying and you don't know what you don't know. And everything the generals say always appears to make full sense. Every first drink I ever had seemed like a rational, reasonable, sensible, understandable thing to do at the time. Uh, the same with acting out in the S area. Uh, every uh, action of acting out came with it uh, a set of rationalizations for why this is reasonable and understandable and it's fine. And this is the terrible predicament. If you're not going to trust your generals, who or what can you trust? Unless you have a substitute, however flawed those generals are, in some, you have to go with them, whatever the consequences, because something must be done. And to be living and breathing on the planet, today something must be done. You can't just sit on a chair and wait to die. You have to live. To live, you have to act. To act, you have to think. To think, you have to be the recipient of thoughts. Yet some of those thoughts will kill me. But I don't know which. The one that kill will kill me will not have a little label attached to it saying, I am a fatal thought. It will seem like every other ordinary little thought. So the sum total of self is that I cannot, in an unrecovered state, in an unrecovered state, that is very important because recovery is possible. I cannot formulate a way of living and follow it through and stay sober. Because at some point, the thought of a drink will occur to me and I will drink. And it will seem the most normal thing in the world. There is a film by... I can never I can never pronounce his name, M. Night Shamalian, whatever, called The Happening, where I, I think because of how mankind has treated the natural world appallingly, the natural world fights back by these plants releasing spores or something, which causes people to commit suicide. So someone will be sitting there and they will take an ordinary object and just quietly kill themselves with it. And that's exactly what a relapse in an alcoholic looks like. To the outside, it looks like the most insane thing, self-destructive thing in the world. But to the person doing it, it seems the most natural thing in the world. So a power greater than myself, a power greater than myself is very simply uh, the origin of a system of thinking and living which can achieve what I cannot achieve on my own. I cannot achieve sobriety on my own. I cannot achieve abstinence from a range of activities on my own. I cannot achieve the sanity I described earlier in relation to 
the Alamon question. I cannot achieve that alone. So the step two idea is simply there is an there is a way of thinking, there is a way of living which is bigger and better than the sum total of what I can come up with. And the surrender to that is, is very practical. It's the surrender to a way of life which completely bypasses those generals. So if the king with his 12 generals one of whom at any given point is lying and therefore none of them can be trusted. If the king has another way to manage the, the theater of war, he should take it. And imagine the king has a, imagine the king has a little advisor who can whisper in his ear and the advisor is connected to a whole chain of spies and informers and uh, wise people generally who can tell him the truth, then he can order the generals to act in a certain way. He's no longer reliant on the generals. The generals become his servants. They cease to become his masters. They cease to be his masters. What the program offers is a way of thinking and a way of or a way of believing, a way of thinking, and a way of acting, which completely sets aside one's own native thinking processes. Uh, certainly, until one has got well, once one has got well, one can start to activate one's own thinking again. One starts to be able to rely on one's own thinking again. The generals become truthful or one acquires the ability to discern a lie that one of the generals is telling. But until then, there is a system which can be substituted for the old way of life. Uh, it's very clever, the AA program. Uh, I think it's cleverer than any of the individuals who wrote the book. They were great, but they weren't that great. So they weren't as great as is very apparent the book is. Uh, on awakening, we ask God to, to direct our thinking first thing in the morning. The very fact I'm asking God to direct my thinking contains within it the admission that anything I think before that point or without having said that prayer is not to be trusted. My day starts with an admission. I cannot trust myself. And then with a good sponsor, uh, you'll be directed to come up with a plan for the day, have it run past, in the early days, have it run past someone else. And then your job is simply, you don't need to think after that at all. You just need to do what's on the plan. If you do what's on the plan, you cannot drink because drinking will not be on the plan. Grady O.H., I think my favorite of all, Alan, uh, all AA speakers, Grady O.H., um, she talks about, uh, left to her own devices, she will drink. This is why she needs to turn her will and life over to a power greater than herself, because God isn't thirsty. So God's plan for me will never entail me having a drink. 
Now, until one, until one's in, until one has developed a direct relationship with God, AA can provide, uh, as it were, a flat-packed life, which requires minimal assembly. It can provide you with, with a way of proceeding from the moment you wake up in the morning till the moment you go to sleep. Uh, perfectly ordinary things like cleaning your house and uh, brushing your teeth and going to work and having your lunch break and going to a meeting and calling your mother and remembering people's birthdays and taking the dog for a walk and going to the dentist and doing your step work and doing your daily review. So the things people ask you to do in AA, people sometimes say, um, you know, if my sponsor had asked me to run up and down Oxford Street naked, I would have done it. Well, we don't ask you to do that. If, if your sponsor does ask you to do that, then get another sponsor. Uh, so the, the, this flat pack life, the, this self-assembly flat pack life contains perfectly ordinary things. Sometimes people say AA is a cult. Now, the, what, there are so many reasons it isn't, uh, the, not least of which is the fact it's terribly disorganized and no one is in charge. Cults are very organized and someone is in charge. Um, but also, uh, cults will separate you from your, cults will separate you from your family, whereas AA says, no, go and make amends to your family, show up on Sunday, take your mother for dinner. Um, we don't want your money. Give it to your creditors. We do the opposite of what cults do in so many ways. There are meetings which are leave, uh, which have room for improvement, but that's a different that's a different matter. The program is not. I don't believe a, a cultish in that way, because it, it it seeks to enable reintegration into society, not separation from society. So the the sanity is brought about initially through substitution of a system of daily living which works in the place of a system which doesn't. And over time, one reacquires the ability to live, uh, uh, to trust one's own thinking subject to certain conditions like continued inventory, prayer and meditation, consultation with sensible people who are not emotionally involved in your situation. But let, let's get back to this, this proof of the existence of God, because it is proof. Um, so the power greater than myself, if left to my own devices, I cannot but drink, I will necessarily drink. And yet I am sober, then a power greater than me must be operating in my life. If the power greater than me were not operating in my life, I would be drunk. It occurred to me, I was at an AA meeting in Ifield Road in Fulham uh, in 1993, which had around 120 people in the room. It was one of the so-called uh, joys of recovery meetings. And I'd been going through one of my cynical phases about recovery but I couldn't be cynical about this I heard people's stories about their drinking it was very clear number one these people shouldn't drink number two these people had no choice but to drink for many many years 
How do we know they had no choice? No one would have voluntarily done what they did, given the consequences. That's how you know you're powerless. If you have the most terrible consequences and you keep doing something, you're either powerless or you're thick. If you're not thick, you're powerless. There we go. And yet these people had been sober for days, weeks, months, years and decades. I remember Angry Sue had been sober since 1963. This was 1993. Either they weren't powerless or had not been powerless. And that was clearly untrue. The stories were authentic. And they certainly hadn't got together in order to lie to me. For what purpose? Why would they Why would they do it? It didn't make sense. I had to believe that they had been powerless, and yet a power was clearly operating in their lives, enabling them to stay sober. Therefore, a power greater than them existed because one could see its operation in their lives. Uh, the wind you can prove exists because nothing else explains the movement of the leaves on the tree. Gravity must exist because you see its operation. When you throw an egg out of the window, it falls to the ground. So something is operating. If it's not gravity, it is something which, to all intents and purposes, is like gravity. You might as well call it gravity. So does God exist? Well, a power greater than them exists, all of those people. You multiply that across AA, a power greater than millions and millions of people exists. Um, and that's a very powerful power. When you see the aggregate effect of that power on the lives of people in AA, and you think that each person in AA uh, if they get well, will positively affect the lives of literally thousands of people. All the people they ever encounter are impacted positively. So you multiply the number of people in AA by the number of people those people have encountered sober. That is how much of an effect this power greater than ourselves has. Now, if it is not God, it has the qualities of God it has the qualities of an, an extraordinary and apparently infinite power. Now, minor points about the creation of the universe and would God be able to create a, a physical object so heavy he can't lift it are minor theological questions. And one can always do a course in theology, which can be very interesting. I've done one. I know it's interesting, but it's not relevant to step two. Either Sally sitting next to you is sober or she's not. Make up your mind. There is no room for equivocation about this. Either the people in recovery have access to power greater than themselves to, to, to stay sober, to stay abstinent and to thrive, or they have not. One or the other. If they have a power greater than them exists, We've only so far proved that a power greater than Sally and Susan and Bobby exists. Have I yet proved a power greater than me exists? Well, not, not quite, but we're almost there. If I look at uh, people I've known in AA who I very much wanted to get sober, but could not 
get them sober through my own agency, even when they wanted me to. That's where it becomes interesting. Sometimes I've had a friend outside AA who very much wanted me to get him sober and I wanted to get him sober. He wanted it, I wanted it, but it didn't work. And then these people do get sober. It is clear that the power that can affect other people's lives is a power greater than me because it affects in them what I cannot affect in them, even with my best efforts. So that power is not just greater than them, it's greater than me. The only remaining question is, will it do for me what it did for them? If you have any science from school, uh, you'll know about the universality of scientific uh, laws, whether it's physics or, or chemistry or, or whatever. Um, if you pour sulfuric acid on sugar in Belfast and then you pour sulfuric acid on sugar in Zagreb, it will do the same thing. It doesn't matter where it is. The This is the point about principle. It is consistent and constant. Um, what's very interesting, one could assert that this power only helps some people and not others. But you look around you in AA and there is no common denominator in terms of identity of the people that are helped. It's not that it's only stupid people. Uh, it's not that it's only clever people. It's not that it's only young people. It's not that it's only old people. It appears to help anyone who asks. Uh, there is no, no one has sunk too low. No one has been too discredited, as it says in the big book. So it's, there's clearly a universality to it, which is very important. Because if it's universal, I'm within the circle, I'm not outside the circle. And whatever little piece of your story you think makes you different, if you go to enough meetings, you'll have the wind taken out of your sails because you'll hear your own story told back to you so many times. You cease to even see it as your story. It's simply something from the, uh, the, the array of things that can happen to a person. Well, that happened to me, but it's also happened to many other people. It is not me. So this power is clearly universal. The only remaining fear is, well, maybe it's random. Maybe it's haphazard. Maybe it just strikes some people. This is why I've, I'm going to be controversial. I don't like the talk of miracles in AA, because it implies that something magical has happened and, and one just has to sort of pray, wait for a miracle. No, you don't wait for a miracle. When you turn the, when you go to the wall and turn the switch and the light comes off, you know, it's a miracle. No, you switch the light on. The program's like that. It's not a miracle. It's the operation of fixed laws. If you go to enough meetings, you'll see that although there are some, uh, apparently some people get lucky and they seem to absorb recovery simply by virtue of being in a lot of meetings and talking to a lot of people, you see something systematic going on amidst the apparent chaos, which is the people that systematically take the steps and are diligent and are sincere, they get well 
and they stay well, provided they continue. They keep on took with the here are the steps we took, we keep on took in. Provided we do that, we're fine. Uh, so step two really takes me to the precipice of step three. I've demonstrated that God exists. So if God is the word for the power greater than myself, a power greater than me exists. And other theological questions can be set aside. Can that power restore me to sanity? Well, it's restored everyone else to sanity. Why not me? And if you're scientific, if you see a law operating very widely, your assumption is that it will be universal, not the other way around. So the scientific approach is to say, if it's worked for other people, it will work for me. It's not, it's not the reverse. So it will work for me. There's only one piece of faith which is required. Uh, at this point, we have almost entire certainty that if we take the rest of the steps, the rest of the steps will work. But there is never a guarantee about a future event. And so what is faith? Faith is the courage to take actions with uncertain outcome. Belief is theoretical. Faith takes the belief and turns it into action. So all I need at the end of step two is sufficient courage to take the rest of the steps. And in a month's time, four weeks time, we'll go on to step three. So Jason, that's all I've got. Have you had any questions come through the chat? Um, we did have one question about the name of the speaker that you mentioned. Um, uh, was Grady it Grady O'H? Grady, Grady O'H. Yeah. Okay, that was one question. So we've got a raised hand, Angelo. Go for it. Hey, my name is Angelo. I'm a sexaholic. Thank you, Tim. Um, so my question is, you said about, okay, I cannot trust my thinking. Um, at, the, at the beginning, you said that, and you said that, yeah, I just, I pray, I pray the 11-step prayer and, or go through this 11-step and, and check my plan with somebody else. How practically are you doing it? How much um, and how you apply it in your life? Okay, so we've got to, we've got two phases of recovery. The first phase of recovery is in your early days and weeks and months when you're still mad. Um, and then as you take the steps, you complete the amends, you sponsor other people over the years, sanity returns. And also, once you're in for a few years, it, I, I have to make very, very few decisions. There's almost everything in my life I've been doing for years. I don't need to think about anything. If there is a novel situation or a difficult situation, I run it past someone else. But in early days, the advice to most people, uh, which I think is right, is uh, put off all big decisions except step three. That's a big decision. But apart from the big decision of step three, put everything else off. If you're married, stay married. If you're single, stay single. If you're in a job, stay in the job maybe if you haven't got a job get a job that maybe is the only thing that might be useful in early days but don't rock the boat don't make any big decisions 
if you don't make any big decisions, there's almost nothing to decide once you establish what the basic obligations of your life are. So to pull someone into that process of saying, right, what, what should my weekly life look like? What would a sensible person, given my circumstances, prescribe for a sane, healthy day where I look after myself, I fulfill my obligations and I do a few enjoyable things. And there's very little that can go wrong then. All you have to do is stick to the plan for the day. Luke. Hi, Tim. Thank you so much for that. That was really cool. I just have one question and it's a practical one. Um, uh, when I came to rehab, I had a situation ongoing in London that had happened on my relapse and it involved the police. And when I came here, I was struggling with this thing of two of like, what is my action like on a practical level to engage and to see that through and to improve the chances of things going well there? And when am I becoming like obsessive and trying to sort of dominate and take my power back in a situation? When it's a practical issue, how can I resolve around step two to do the right thing okay so, so, so that's, that's good question. That's, that's good question. Oh, sorry there we go okay uh so if you've got a medical problem you go to the doctor you present your symptoms you present your situation the doctor writes a prescription and you go off and you get the prescription filled or you take the action suggested um, to me, sanity, I had a tricky situation this week. Uh, I worked out what to do with, in conjunction with someone else. I ran it past a couple of other people, got an action plan, implemented the action plan, forget about it. So if you can't trust yourself, you find someone who is trusted to think through the situation with you, to devise a plan, you implement the plan, then you leave it there. So in each house, there is a room where the act, that there is a designated activity for that room to keep the activity in the room. Uh, the insanity is when you have a problem, taking the problem and trying to deal with it in every room of the house so that it fills your entire consciousness, fills your entire life. Um, Samuel. Hello, um, here's Samuel Sexaholic. Um, I would ask, I would like to ask uh, two questions if I can. Uh, the first one is that um, I have troubles with big uh, self-criticism and I also see that um, this is a bit affecting my, my relationship with my higher power that, that I think my higher power is also uh, a big critic. And I, I want to ask if you had some experience, maybe how to uh, overcome this this distance uh, from higher power of of this this maybe thinking that it, that is it's critical and and bad. Yeah, very good question. Um, yes, this is relevant. This is very relevant to step two. Um, so the point about it being a loving higher power. Um, what is to be criticized in my life uh, is not me, it's my beliefs, my thinking and my behavior. So if you were a chef and you were using all of the wrong knives and cooking equipment, 
the head chef would come along and replace your knives with better ones, would replace your techniques with better ones. So the knives should be criticized, the techniques should be criticized, but there's nothing wrong with the chef. The chef is simply using the wrong techniques and using the wrong equipment. And that's why later on in the program, I don't know what step you're on, but later on in the program in step four, it talks about a fact finding and a fact facing um, project which means we're interested in facts, not in moral judgments about the facts or moralizing. But they are moral judgments, but they're not moralizing. Moralizing is when you wave your finger at someone, say you're bad. So it's the difference between an error and sin in the religious sense. An error is simply to be corrected. When there is a sin, the person is to be punished. And so I think what is healthy is to move from a sin-based perception of wrongs to an error-based perception of wrongs. So to treat it as being no different than arithmetic. So if you say two and two is five, you're not bad, you're just wrong. And you'd rather be wrong than bad. So to embrace being wrong, because then you can be, the, the situation can be corrected. Uh, Barry. Your audio is pretty bad, Barry. If you turn your video off, it might work better. Or possibly, actually, Barry, if you can um, type your question, that will be helpful. I'll come back to you. I'll take Mark's question now. <clears throat> thanks, Tim. Uh, thanks so much for taking the meeting and everything. Uh, yeah, I just wondered, you know, with regards to any decision or action or behaviours in recovery, the faculty that tells me that it's the right thing <clears throat> that is, as I understand it, which is very limited, um, and it, a form of intuition. And the book talks about intuition all the way through, well, on and off, um, and kind of sums up that actually it will become something that we rely on. Can you comment on how you know when something is right that you're doing? Or yeah, that's a very, good, very good question. Um, Bill, Cle Bill C., um talks about he says uh you've got to follow your gut not your head the trouble is most of the time uh your head does an impression of your gut so you think it's your gut but it's actually your head um i remember many years ago maureen said that the most dangerous thing that people can do in recovery is follow their dreams so people will often report very powerful emotions or instincts uh, as, as driving their decisions. In my experience, that, that, that's always been an absolute catastrophe. Um, I think what, what I have gained is a sense of morality about poor behavior on my part. I, I'm, that's pretty reliable. When I behave badly, I know how? Because I start to justify it to myself. I've never had to justify eating a salad because I know it's the right thing. But you have to, you find yourself justifying eating cakes. Well, I've had a long day, so I need a bit of energy, whatever. Um, so with, with 
In a negative sense, I think my intuition has got pretty good. In a positive sense, about bright ideas, I'm very, very cautious about those. And what I find, when I've had a bright idea to make a big change in my life, uh, I run through the decision systematically, and then I leave it and come back and a week later, a month later, I put it in my diary, come back to this question. Almost invariably, a month later, I realize it's a terrible idea. I was trying to make an external change to address a temporary internal situation. So I'm extremely cautious about the over-reliance on intuition when it comes to positive plans. Other people may have completely different views on that. I haven't really, it's the first time I've been asked that question in a long time, so that might not be a representative answer. Jason. Yeah, this is a question from Barry, sent me the message. Uh, my question is, how do you work practice step two on a daily basis? And then I've got my Uh, good. So, yes, I don't need to practice step two on a daily basis is, is the, uh, the very simple. And well, that makes life a lot easier. Uh, again, I don't practice step three on a daily basis. I, because I, I have taken step three, which is decision. What I do is follow through the step three on a daily basis by practicing. If I'm in steps four through nine, taking daily action to practice four through nine and having a life built on steps 10, 11 and 12, pages 84 to 88 of the big book. So there's a difference between the, the, the decision in three and the follow through. So you can you can um, decide in step three uh, for, or maybe in life, you can decide to go on a trip. You don't need to remake that decision every day of the trip because you're now on the trip. You just have to follow through with the trip. So it makes life a lot easier just to practice the steps which are there, not to feel that one has to practice every step every day. Um, and Jason, did you say you had a question as well? Yeah, I do have a question, Tim. Um, my question is about thinking. Um, it's a huge, I've had a huge problem with it. Um, a lot of people I, um, talk to in fellowship, have huge problems with thinking. Um, yeah, the question is like, there's two questions. How dangerous do you think question uh, thinking is? And how do you deal with thinking? Uh, it's, well, it's a, it's, a big, it's a big topic. With thinking, I don't really recommend it. Um, I, I think it's very overrated. Uh, I was in a meeting, <laughs> Sometimes we'll talk about over intellectualizing the 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 the, the program. Uh, what they often then go on to describe is not intellectual at all. It's just mind babble. So just because you're thinking doesn't mean you're you're really doing anything. In a course in miracles, it's very interesting. It says you're not thinking at all. It's just white noise. There is a real layer of thinking behind that that you can't get to because your head is just full of white noise. Um, but to answer the second question, the uh, actually a couple of points. Uh, there's a, a writer called Charlotte Yoko Beck, who is an was an American Zen writer. He's very very good, and she talks about the difference between technical thinking and all other thinking. Technical thinking is where you're frying an egg or planning a trip. And you need to systematically think some practical things in order to get the thing done. 
And that's fine. And she said, everything else is a load of rubbish, really. You're just making stories up. None of it is real. Um, the second important thing about thinking um, is over the course of the day, I was talking to someone earlier about this. Over the course of the day, you have maybe 30,000 thoughts or 50,000 thoughts, certainly very many thoughts. And none of those thoughts are either true or false, because each thought is true only in a, only in a context. It, they're like jigsaw puzzle pieces. Jigsaw, each jigsaw puzzle piece, if you had a 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle, there is no picture on any one piece. The picture neither tells a story nor fails to tell a story. You have to put the pieces together to tell the story. Uh, I think that the mind, certainly my mind, is like a jigsaw puzzle where I have all of my jigsaw puzzle pieces, then I have lots of pieces of other people's jigsaw puzzles. And things which aren't even jigsaw puzzle pieces are thrown in there, which look like jigsaw puzzle pieces. My job is to assemble a jigsaw out of the correct pieces and in the correct order. I'm not responsible for the thoughts that come into my mind. So I'm, I need never feel guilty about strange thoughts. If, uh, and this is case for me as someone with problems in the S area, things happened in my childhood that didn't, that shouldn't have happened. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, things happened to me that shouldn't have happened. And when that happens, the bulkheads between different parts of your mind get eroded or broken. So uh, sexual thoughts will leak into different areas that don't belong there. For instance, in a work context, you'd be talking to someone and there is a sexual thought and you're like, my God, I'm at work. This shouldn't be happening here. And this doesn't happen to me anymore. It used to happen to me a lot, that, that all the different areas of my life would bleed into each other. And I used to feel incredibly guilty about that. And I don't anymore. And in fact, most of that has stopped now, that the bulkheads have been reestablished. There are boundaries between the different areas of my life and the different areas do not bleed into each other anymore. But the point is that I'm not responsible for the thoughts that come into my mind. I'm responsible for what I then do with them. I'm responsible for what I build out of them. But to remember that almost no thinking in my life has any utility, any usefulness whatsoever. Which is why I do a lot more reading and listening than I do thinking. I do very little thinking. Uh, because it is not necessary and it doesn't do me any good. And the, the quality of my thinking is so poor. I'm better off listening to someone that's really thought about something and written down something sensible. Listen to that instead. Um, free Freestyle thinking is very dangerous. Uh, unstructured. My first sponsor, Doug, said unstructured free time is very dangerous. Do not have unstructured free time unless you're really very well, then you can freestyle a little bit. But certainly in the first few years, don't have unstructured free time. Know what you're doing when you're supposed to be doing it. And this is not something that we've made up or is true just for us. Uh, I, I don't know much about um, the various monastic orders, 
but I do know a little bit. And th this idea of the so-called office of the hours, where at each three-hour interval, there is a set of prayers that are said. So terse and sexton, known, and compline and, and, and so on, vespers, lords. Because if the day isn't structured, your mind will produce hell. And so the purpose of the structure is to bring you back with the bells that start the service and then this same service again and again and again to bring the person back to the center. These are people living a monastic life. These aren't people even out in the world of social media and all the other rubbish out there. So to not have one's own mind as the center but to have something else to live by. And that's the whole purpose of step two, is to have something to live by other than the thought that has just occurred to me, because that's the danger. So what I think is usually a very little consequence, what I feel is of very little consequence, how I'm living, that's the bit that matters. So Jason, I think that's all we've got for questions, unless you've got any more from the chat. No, there's no more questions. Um... Does anyone want to ask Tim a question before we end the meeting? I think, yeah, someone's got their, Sars got your hand up. Sorry, I couldn't find where the hand, raised Great. hand. Um, I, a question that's alive in me with regards to step two or steps one, two, and three is around, um, exploring that through different fellowships and I have more of a curiosity around Tim as you spoke having been in AA and then Al-Anon so if if intrinsically I've I've worked these steps and I'm also working with a sponsee at the moment who is in two different fellowships I'm wanting to it's like, can you ever overcook that? Or like you said, you know, you don't do the step two because it's already, it's living inside of you. So that's what's alive for me in my question, which isn't exactly formed, but perhaps you get the essence of what I'm trying to ask. There's a line in Parks and Recreation where Ron Swanson says, um, don't half-ass two things, whole-ass one thing. And when I when I was new, uh, I just did AA. After about a year and a half, I added Al-Anon. I've got into trouble by trying to ride too many horses at once. I found a way over, and it's taken a long time to integrate the Al-Anon program and the AA program into what I operate as a single program in my life. Um, having multiple sponsors in multiple fellowships with multiple processes i've no i've met people who are on step two in one fellowship step seven in another fellowship step step 11 in a third fellowship and i i don't understand i don't know i've never been able to make that work trying to reconcile different systems very 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 difficult um what does help though what one great difficulty if you're trying to get sober in aa and you're still haunting venues sex venues and you're still um you know eating cakes at three o'clock in the morning when you shouldn't be eating cakes at three o'clock in the morning you're probably going to struggle to stay sober and it might be necessary to 
uh, establish some practical sanity around sleep and diet and certain other activities in order merely to stay sober. Uh, certainly with people who are, um, uh, because of this so-called chemsex phenomenon, that sex is, is intrinsically tied up with, uh, with chemicals and you can't separate, you can't separate the two, they're, they're part of a single pattern. Um, and I've met people that are in AA that can't get sober uh, because they keep taking crystal meth. Why do they keep taking crystal meth? They, they keep hanging out on, 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 on uh, hookup apps. So the hookup apps have to go for the crystal to go, for the alcohol to go. It's all tied up together. What I've uh, found helpful myself so I only do two fellowships, but I qualify for a lot more. I need to be careful around a lot of different behaviors. Um, is to have a solid steps one, two, and three with all of the live issues. And so I've got sponsees in AA who 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 have AA as their main thing, or even have Al-Anon as their main thing, but have a food problem as well and i've got sponsees in alanol in oa rather who've got this rotating cycle where they go through the first three steps to help people who are in other fellowships uh, but need to get in place a one two and three around food and a food plan and some accountability and so on uh, because i know a lot of people in oa so unless you do oa you know unless you're just doing oa unless you make oa the main thing i can't help you and i understand that um, so a little bit of compromise is necessary sometimes rather than saying, well, I shall just ignore the food. I shall ignore the sex. I shall ignore the other stuff for years. I'm just going to deal with the alcohol right now. That may not work if those other things are causing you to kick off with the alcohol as well. Once you've lit the touch paper, all of the all of the haystacks are next to each other. So they all go up in flames. So, uh, but that's a, a system which I've seen work a lot where people have one main fellowship, but maybe visit some of the others, do steps one, two, and three in the others and have people to be accountable to in the others. And that can keep the other addictions tamped down for long enough for them to get well in the primary fellowship where they feel most at home. Now, you, you said you were unsure about what the question was. I hope the unsure answer has addressed the unsure question. Thank you. Yes. Great. Very good. So I think I think we're done. We're done there, Jason. Okay, great. Well, thanks, Tim. Thanks so much for um, speaking for us today. Um, Tim will be running step three workshop in about a month's time. There'll be plenty of updates in WhatsApp groups and stuff. So I've also posted the link to our WhatsApp group, uh, also the seventh tradition. Um, if you can't use the PayPal link, um, it's probably it's good practice to contribute to your local fellowship. Um, um, Tim, did you want to um, post your blog or anything this time? Maybe next time, or well, if um, let me just post a little link with some. Um, just a moment. Yeah, so what I, I posted is a little link to my um, contact details, which has got the blog, it's got some meetings on there, which is some very good links to some good meetings and my, my contact details as well. So if people need to contact me for any reason or want other materials, then 
save that link and then you can access anything you need. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Tim. So, um, yeah, if anyone wants to reach out to Tim, please do so by the link. Um, yeah, we'll just wrap it up there. Do you want to finish up with the um, serenity prayer or something like that? Or? Well, I think Mark has just... Mark, do you want to say yeah, something? Yeah, I just wondered, Jason, what kind of contribution would cover everything, um, you know, with the PayPal? Um, five pounds, you know, that... Yeah. Kind of we take five pounds in Australia. <laughs> thank you very much. That'll do. Thank you. Thank you. So, right. so thank you everyone for being here. So, if you'd like to help me close with the Serenity Prayer, God, God, Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Nice to have you all here. Good to see you, Barry. You got bad connection. I'm not sure. Anyway, good to see you, Shimon. <laughs>